The parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most famous stories Jesus told. When we hear of a Good Samaritan, pretty much everybody knows that it means someone who stops to help a stranger or someone in need. And a lot of us will even know the story. But even seasoned Bible scholars often completely miss the point of what this parable is all about. So I'm looking forward to looking through this parable with you now. And I want to do two things. Firstly, I want to just walk through the story and enjoy this humorous, surprising and insightful story Jesus tells. And secondly, I want to draw out three key points of application of how this really relates to us today and draw out that meaning for us. So let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord God, we thank you that you speak to us through your Word, by your Spirit, and thank you that you have something to say to us today. Lord, we humbly ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear what you want to tell us, what you want to teach us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So first of all, let's walk through the passage. It starts like this. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? An expert in the law. This was not an expert in uh, criminal law or um, the law of society um, as we know it today, but he was an expert in religious law, the law of the Old Testament. And he stood up to test Jesus. From the outset, Luke, the biographer, notes this guy's seriously dodgy motives for asking this question. He wanted to take Jesus down. He wanted to make Jesus look bad, to discredit him, or worse, to gain ammunition for the death penalty they were trying to get pinned on Jesus. You see, he stands up to test Jesus. He even sees himself as above Jesus. He's the expert. He's the arbiter of truth, and he wants to trap Jesus in what he says. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. He's asking, how do I get right with God? How do I prepare for death and the life to come? How can I be ready to meet my Maker? 
On April 17, the Washington Post published a study of Google searches for how-to questions. For a set period of April, comparing 2019 with 2020, not surprisingly, they were a bit different. What have you been searching for on Google? These are apparently the top searches for this period in April. How to train your dragon from the popular kids movie was replaced by how to make a mask. How to draw and how to tie up a tie were replaced with how to make hand sanitizer and how to boil eggs. And we also saw how to file for unemployment entering the top five. Our how-to questions on Google have moved from entertainment and enrichment and employment to how are we going to survive COVID-19. Oh, well, that and also taking a screenshot was in the top five in both years. So we still don't know how to take a screenshot. But this guy, this expert in the law, is ages ahead of our questions on Google, isn't he? He's asking one of the most significant questions, not just about survival, but about what about life after death? It's a question of eternal significance. What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. The expert in the law is super sharp. He knows the Old Testament so well. And he quotes from the key passages, the, the texts of the Old Testament, the very ones that Jesus himself quoted for, from as the, the greatest commandments. When uh, it, it comes up in Matthew chapter 22, these are Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and Leviticus 19 verse 18. And Jesus, in Matthew 22, said, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the essence of the law. So this guy is super sharp. He's getting it right. And Jesus tells him so. Yep, you've nailed it. You've nailed the Ten Commandments. You've nailed the whole Old Testament law. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You know, I think here Jesus is being a bit cheeky. So the guys come to him as a, with a question that's actually a trap. And so Jesus has answered the question with a question. Smart move. The guys answered his own question and Jesus said, yeah. But he's just giving this little bit of a, a kind of a, cheeky reply of like do this and you will live so okay let's see you do it you want to know how to be right with God 
you've given the right answer, you've got the right words, you've got the right knowledge, now let's see you do it. Do it and you will live. But we read, he wanted to justify himself. Surprise, surprise. He doesn't like Jesus' tricky, cheeky little comeback. So he wants to justify himself, to make himself right. And maybe Jesus' little challenge here has opened up some concerns or questions for him. Yeah. Well, what do I really have to do? What does this really mean? I can quote off the words, but what does it mean? So he asked Jesus, wanting to justify himself, and who is my neighbour? Here we get a glimpse into this guy's view. He wants to justify himself, and he's thinking, well, okay, I think I'm pretty good, I, I love God, and I love others, but maybe there's just one little technicality you can get me on. And that's all this technicality of who is my neighbour. And if I can sure up that, then I can pretty much tick off, yep, I'm good. Look at me, I'm really good, I'm the best. He's pretty confident. Just want to sure up this little thing, well, who is my neighbour? And then I'll be able to tick off, yep, I am, I'm right, I'm good. And uh, I can be proud of myself, basically. And Jesus sees through his whole wrong attitude about this. And so, as Jesus often does, to help someone on that journey to truth, to understanding it, he tells them a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, at this point, the hairs stand up on your body and your heart starts beating faster. And you go, what? this is a scary story. If you know the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's infamous. There's a pass going down this winding mountain. It's not so much the sheer cliffs that you could tumble over that you're worried about as the robbers, the thugs and thieves that are famously hanging out in the caves in these ravines. You go down there and there are layers of danger and alarm. There's even a place that's so infamous that's called Blood Pass. You are scared. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, surprise, surprise, it happened just as you feared. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Here, you're getting glimpses of hope only to be dashed. Who is going to help this man? He's half dead. 
He needs someone to help him. Then Jesus says, but a Samaritan. Whoa, let me stop right there. A Samaritan. At this point, the listeners are in shock. The Samaritans were hated, despised traitors. They were part of the tribes of Israel who had turned against them. And there's a long and complex history there, one of hatred. An Englishman, an Irishman and an Australian walk into a bar. And the bartender says, what is this? Some kind of a joke? We all know the familiar lines of those jokes where you set up and you have the familiar characters, the familiar formula. And this was like it with this story Jesus told. The story when the priest, the Levite, and the Jew, the good Jew. And Jesus breaks into this common formula and he says, the priest, the Levite, and not the Jew, the good Jew, the Samaritan. Whoa, they're expecting the hero who's going to come and save this guy. And instead of the good Jew, they've put, he's put their enemy there. They would have been scandalized. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. The Samaritan, this despised enemy, has compassion on this man lying there who would have hated him, would have despised him. He has compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil, soothing, and wine, antiseptic. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. Now, we're seeing a picture here, aren't we? He's taken to him to an inn. He's, he's stayed with him and nursed him through the night, this stranger he found on the road. Because he says the next day. And he takes out two denarii. Now, we know from studying um, uh, historical documents that two denarii would have bought two months in an inn. If you calculate that at about maybe like a modest sum, uh, maybe like a $100 a night for, for an inn, um, then you're looking at about $6,000 today, right, for that two months stay. This is a significant fee to spend on a stranger. And he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said to him, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expense you may have. Wow, he kind of writes the guy a blank check, doesn't he? It's shocking. Who would do this? He prioritizes this guy's well-being over his own. Well, that, after all, is what we would 
want someone to do for us, isn't it? If we are to love others as we love ourselves. Jesus really drives home the message of the greatest commandment. And you can't help but feel inadequate. How can we live like this? Who can do this? The audience is in shock. The expert in the law is probably a mixture of bewildered and furious. Not only did he fail to trap Jesus, but now he's being told a story which is turning his world upside down. He's come to Jesus expecting to deliver the debating equivalent of the uppercut knockout and see Jesus smashed to the ground rhetorically and perhaps even to corner Jesus and, and pin some charge on him. But he's found himself on the receiving end, not just of an intellectual smashing, but Jesus has cut through all his pride and religiosity to reveal his hypocritical religion and to tear it to shreds and leave him completely vulnerable. And Jesus drives it home with one last question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Remember the guy's question, well, who is my neighbour? Seeking to justify himself. Yeah, I'll tick off my neighbours who I'll love and care for. And Jesus just explodes it. Well, not just to, to well, your neighbour is your enemy, but you have to be the neighbour. You have to become a good neighbour, even for those who hate you. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to say the despised name, the Samaritan. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, what are we to do with this? Like I said, I just want to draw out three points of application to consider what this means for us today. Firstly, we can see that this parable is a call to live a higher standard of ethics than anybody else calls us to do. This uh, great commandment demonstrated by this story shows us how Jesus lifts the bar on our expectations of what we should live like, how we should love, who we should love. And remember, he already did that earlier when he said, you've heard that it was said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and do good for, to those who persecute you. This is what the Samaritan does. He's the example of it. 
Inspired by the parable of the Good Samaritan, Princeton psychologists John Daly and Dan Batson conducted a fascinating experiment in the 1970s. Students were given the task of preparing a talk on the Good Samaritan and then delivering the sermon in a studio across the campus where they would be assessed on how well they delivered their talk. As each student wrapped up their preparation in the classroom, the researchers placed a time constraint on them by giving them one of three instructions. Either, you're late, they were expecting you a few minutes ago, you'd better hurry. Or, secondly, the studio assistant is ready for you, please go over right away. Or thirdly, it'll be a few minutes before they're ready for you, but you might as well head on over if you have to wait over there, it shouldn't be long. As each student walked on their own from the preparation room to the studio, they encountered a victim in a deserted alleyway, lying on the ground, just like the wounded traveller in the parable they were about to give a talk on. So they had a chance to apply what they were about to preach on. Interestingly, 63% of the students who were told they had time helped the victim. 45% of the students, so it was, uh, you know, they were just on time, helped the victim but only 10% of the students, given a rush, told to get there quick, stopped and helped the victim. I think this is a fascinating experiment. And for us, I guess we think, well, what would we have done in that situation? Sometimes we're so task-focused that we just focus on what we're supposed to do and we maybe forget the more important things. But especially under the pressure of hurry. Hurry seems to blind us to what's really important. Are we too rushed, too hurried in our life that we lose sight of what's really important? And that we even make, I guess, set ourselves up that we would fail to show the love and compassion to others that God calls us to show. You know, I think of recent events in America. George Floyd murdered by a policeman, killed at the hands of the law. And the president, Donald Trump, standing with a Bible in hand while no apology has yet come from his mouth, standing using this Bible to seemingly, in, I guess, claim the moral authority of 
Jesus, the Bible, the church. Interestingly, comments say he should open up the Bible and read Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Now, whatever you think of Donald Trump and the situation in America, we all need to be reminded of this profound truth. How much do we live this out? What is it in our lives that is killing our love for others? Is it our rush? Is it our pride? Is it our fear? Secondly, and here I get to the main thing that most people miss of this parable. Secondly, we see that this parable is really not mainly about this need to love others and help the poor and needy. As important as this is, we need to keep the big picture of this story and the context in mind. What does this this expert in the law ask Jesus? He's asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking, how do I get right with God? And Jesus' answer shows clearly that he does not have what it takes to get right with God. He cannot, he is not able to love God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength. He is not able to love his neighbour as he loves himself. He thinks he can do it. But his greatest need is to know that he can't do it. And to have those illusions of his own adequacy stripped away and to reveal his spiritual poverty before God, to reveal his spiritual bankruptcy before his maker. And that is the main point of this story that Jesus tells. And that is the greatest need of this expert in the law that Jesus met. And it's also our greatest need today. Our natural tendency as human beings is to think that if I just do more, if I just try harder, I can be good enough. I can please God. I can tick off the right boxes. I can please the right people. I can, um, whatever it takes, if I just work harder, I can do it. But Jesus strips all of that striving and effort away and says, You don't even come close. I want you to imagine in the drought last year, a boy grabs a small watering can of water and he goes the long and arduous journey out to Warragamba Dam. And finally he arrives full of hope and joy that and confidence 
I've got my watering can of water and I'm going to save us from the drought. And he pours that watering can only to see it barely wet the rocks. That's the kind of picture we get of our attempts to be right with God by being good enough. Jesus, we see, is the only true good Samaritan. He's the only one who has the capacity, who is able to, the only one qualified to be able to love others perfectly. The only one who can come and save others because all of us need to be saved. Jesus goes to the cross where he takes our sin, our guilt, our shame on himself so that we can be right with God, so that we can have peace, fulfillment and know our true purpose so that we can enjoy God's favour in this life and in the life to come and we can face the ultimate challenge of death with confidence. Thirdly, the most loving thing that you can do, the most, if we're thinking about where we've come from, firstly, we do need to be reaching out to love others. Secondly, we see that, you know, we can never be right with God. Even We can never love God completely, never love others completely. Thirdly, in our attempts to love others, and we should keep pursuing those because they're good, um, in our attempts to love others, the most loving thing that we can do is to share Jesus with someone. The most loving thing that we can do is to share Jesus, to share the good news of Jesus with someone. The greatest stopping and helping uh, the victim, the greatest way to be a neighbor, to become a neighbor, the greatest gift of life that we could ever offer someone is sharing the good news of Jesus because he alone can give them peace. We can't do that for them. Jesus alone can do that and they need to meet Jesus. Jesus alone can give them hope. Jesus alone can transform their lives. And what we see as we come to know Jesus, as others come to know Jesus, is that ability to love God and that ability to love others grows in us. We don't do it perfectly, but we do it more and more as God's love is becoming real in us. So who is your neighbour? We can twist that question from its original intent on the lips of the expert of the law to ask a more loving question. 
who is our neighbour, not to limit who my neighbour is so I can tick off boxes of being right, but who is my neighbour to expand that to everyone who needs to know Jesus? Who is my neighbour down the street and how can I be a neighbour to them? Who is my neighbour online that I connect with who knows me and how can I be a neighbour to them? Who is my neighbour in the global village and how can I be a good neighbour to them? Love your neighbour means supporting the work of mission, of God's mission to take the good news out to the world. Love your neighbour means helping the world's most truly needy in the name of Jesus, both with bringing the gospel, with helping them physically, financial support, whatever it takes. If we're called to be the neighbour to those who are most unlikely, who is it that is someone who maybe you wouldn't normally talk to, but who needs love, help, and ultimately who needs Jesus?